With those great gospel truths ringing in our ears, by your death I live again, we turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 this morning. Um, If you are visiting with us, one of the things that you'll like to know about First Baptist is that we do something that we call teaching the Bible by teaching the Bible. And all that that means is that we just simply make our way straight through books of the Bible. We don't ignore passages. We try to touch on every text in the books that we're preaching through. And one of the things that you'll find uh, sitting under a ministry like that is that this kind of Bible teaching sometimes takes you into what we would call uncharted territory. And that is certainly the case this morning as we talk about a sin for which there is no forgiveness. A sin for which there is no forgiveness. As the elders and I gathered this morning to pray, I asked them, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on the unforgivable sin? Not one of them could answer any recolle- with any recollection having heard a sermon on the unforgivable sin. And I don't know that I have either, to be completely honest with you. Uh, certainly haven't preached one until this morning. So Matthew chapter 12 in verses 22 to 37. Matthew 12, 22 to 37. As you turn there, <clears throat> we'll read these words together. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be? the son of David. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, He is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. 
For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is God's Word. Let's pray before we begin. Father, as we come before you with our Bibles open yet again, our prayer is that you will give us clarity, that you will help us to understand exactly what it is that your Son is saying through this text in Matthew's Gospel, that you would change us and transform us, that you would cause us to gather to the Lord Jesus, to be forgiven, to know eternal life, that you would save us from an indifference and a hardness of heart, which leads ultimately to destruction. We need your help, and so we pray for it now in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't think I necessarily need to remind any of us in this room this morning about the importance and the power of words. All of us know from our personal lives and even the history of our nation just how important and powerful words can be. Words, as a matter of fact, have the power to birth nations. Is it not in our Declaration of Independence we hold these truths to be self-evident that we find our identity? Words can also be used to begin to break down barriers. Those of us who can remember the words of Reagan, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Words can establish relationships. As a man or a woman says, I do. Or they may terminate relationships when a spouse informs the other, I'm leaving. Words can inspire hope and encouragement. I have a dream. Words can also communicate shock in the midst of tragedy. It's the New York Times on September 12th. U.S. attacked, hijacked, jets, destroyed twin towers, and hit Pentagon in day of terror. Words can make a child's day. Would you like to be my friend? Words can ruin a child's day. You're stupid or you're ugly. Words can acquit. The jury finds the defendant not guilty. Words, on the other hand, can condemn. The jury finds the defendant guilty. What if I were to tell you this morning that your words have the power to justify or to condemn you before the judgment seat of God on that great day? Is that not what Jesus very plainly says at the end of the passage that we read, verse 36? I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. Indeed, there is great power in our words. Now this morning, as we turn to Matthew's Gospel we turn to a discussion of what is very often known as the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin. And I want to just begin our time together by addressing what will, for many of us, become the occasion of anxiety and grief and even fear. Perhaps you've never heard that there is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. As you hear this passage read out, and certainly as you hear the passage preached, you begin to think, perhaps maybe I've committed that sin. 
Maybe I am eternally lost and can never again be found. Let me tell you that you're in good company. One of the darkest periods of my spiritual life came early on in the faith when I thought for certain that I had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. So understand that there is grace and there is forgiveness. There is salve for the broken heart in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus. I am far more concerned this morning, not for the person who walks away thinking in fear, maybe I've committed this sin. I'm far more concerned this morning for those of you who've come week in and week out and have heard time and time again, not only from myself and my colleagues, but from previous pastors who faithfully preached the gospel here at First Baptist Church over a long history, and yet you remain outside of Christ. You have not truly committed yourself to following after Him. I'm far more concerned with you. Now, to set this passage in its context, to truly understand what it is that we're talking about, we have to understand something of the flow of the entire Gospel of Matthew. It's a dangerous thing to just sort of approach a passage with this kind of solemnity and seriousness without thinking it through. We've got to think it through. And you'll notice that as I read, the, the occasion for this extensive treatment of the unforgivable sin by our Lord is the question asked in verse 23, can this be the son of David? And we said last week that Matthew's mission, really, his thesis statement, if you will, for the entire gospel is a bit like Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia when he says of Aslan, he's the king, I tell you. That's Matthew's message. He is the king, I tell you. Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is the son of David. That is to say, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that Jesus is the one to whom all the Old Testament kings pointed. He is the king to end all kings. And early on in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, this is how keen Matthew is to get this across to us, he tells us that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is the son of David. Now at the end of Matthew's Gospel then, in chapter 28, as Jesus commissions His disciples and sends them out to preach the Gospel and to make disciples, Jesus Himself says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. The great King that comes from the line of David is not simply the King of Israel. He's the King of the universe. Jesus is claiming this Davidic authority for Himself baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Why? Because, as he says in verse 18, all authority has been given to me. I'm the King. And one of the great ironies, you might say tragedies, of the story, the true story that Matthew tells, is that very few people throughout the telling of the story, the unfolding of the story, are able to see that Jesus is who Matthew wants us to see who Jesus is. As a matter of fact, some of the people that, that identify Jesus as the son of David, it happens on two occasions, are groups of blind men. There's an intentional irony there that the blind men are the people who see, whereas the religious leaders of the day, those who should be able to see spiritually, are blind as a bat. They cannot come to grips with who Jesus is. And that's certainly what's happening here. We said last week that this section of Matthew's Gospel revolves around the key word opposition, as Jesus is opposed 
And he explains to his disciples that they too will be opposed if they follow after him. As early on as chapter 9, at the end of the chapter in verse 34, the Pharisees begin to say he casts out demons, Jesus, by the prince of demons. They call him demonic. And in chapter 10, as Jesus preaches to his disciples, he says, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If they've called me satanic, certainly they will call you satanic. And here in chapter 12, this opposition to Jesus reaches an absolutely absurd fever pitch. You can see that the occasion of all that Jesus says, again, is this question that comes on the heels of a demon-oppressed man, verse 22, being brought to Jesus to be healed. Now, the Gospel writers, the New Testament, notes no distinction between demon oppression and demon possession. Simply stated, this is a man who is being tormented by a demon with the physical manifestation of blindness and an inability to speak. This man is blind and mute. Now, Jesus has been healing people routinely all throughout chapters 8 and 9. We saw that over and over again. He took our illnesses. He bore our infirmities. Jesus is the great healer, and it points to the fact that he is, in fact, the Messiah. But here, on the heels of an unmistakable miracle, healing of a man born, or a man oppressed by a demon, possessed by a demon, blind and mute, the people in the crowds around Jesus begin to raise the question can this be the son of David? It doesn't come out in the English translations, but really it, it has the, the, the sense of this can't really be the son of David, can it? And as soon as this question is asked, the religious leaders seize on the opportunity to discredit and malign Jesus. When the Pharisees heard it, they said it is only by Beelzebul, Lord of the flies, Satan, that this man casts out demons. Here's what's at stake. It almost seems absurd to even create the categories, but this is what's at stake. Is Jesus the Son of David and therefore the Messiah? You and I must bow the knee to and follow and trust. Or is he the servant of Satan? Son of David or servant of Satan? Who is Jesus? That's what's at stake in this text. Now, as the Pharisees accuse Jesus of being aligned with Satan, they commit what is referred to in verse 31 as blasphemy against the Spirit. I want to give three points here from Jesus' response to this wicked allegation that will help us understand exactly what this sin is and why it is so severe. The first is that blasphemy against the Spirit is illogical. It is illogical. That's verses 25 to 29. So much for checking your mind at the door to be a Christian. Christianity is logical, it's rational. This claim that Jesus is in line with Satan is illogical. That's number one. Number two, blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable. That's verses 30 to 32. And then finally, blasphemy against the Spirit is internal. Verses 33 to 37. That is to say... It's not simply a formula that someone speaks. It is the character of someone's heart. Blasphemy against 
the Spirit. So first then, blasphemy against the Spirit is illogical, verses 25 to 29. This man casts out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus, verse 25, knowing their thoughts, says to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? This claim is illogical, first of all, because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. In order for a man or woman to say that Jesus is evil, one must conclude then that the evil one himself is at civil war within his own kingdom. It's absurd. It makes no sense. And Jesus brings that out by stating what seems to be a very simple fact. A kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. A home or a city that is not unified will ultimately be defeated. Satan cannot be at civil war with himself or else his kingdom will not stand. It's fascinating to think about this phraseology, Satan being at civil war with himself. Because it was Abraham Lincoln, when he received the nomination in Illinois to be the Republican candidate for president, who drew on the words of Jesus in one of his very first speeches, which he says, quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall, but I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Plain reason. I mean, Lincoln saw it. Our nation will either continue to be divided and fall, or it will become all one thing or all the other. Praise God it became what it did. But Lincoln could see the absurdity of a nation, a kingdom, a city, trying to advance its cause while remaining divided. Jesus points out the inconsistency, the absurdity, and the logic of the Pharisees. Henry and I were watching this Disney movie yesterday as we relaxed on the couch and um, you'll know that there's a trope in most Disney movies in which the main character begins to sort of display a want or a desire, usually for independence, usually through a song. But this particular movie, they decided that they would handle things differently and that they would display the want of the main character through the absurd statements that her parents made. So they'd say things like, you know, it's okay to dream just so long as you don't believe in the dream too much. And it's the last thing you would ever expect in the context of a Disney movie. And this is the last kind of statement you would expect in the context of a gospel. That Jesus is being claimed here, alleged to be in league with Satan. Jesus says it's illogical because a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. It's illogical, secondly, because it's inconsistent. Look at what Jesus says in verse 27. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus here in a master stroke says, you're, you're fine with your sons casting out demons. If I do it by the prince of the power of the air, if I do it by Beelzebul, then by whom do they do it? They will be your judges. 
They themselves will display your inconsistently, inconsistency. And thirdly, this whole scheme is illogical because Jesus has come to bind Satan. Verse 29, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. With these words, Jesus gets right to the core of why it is he came. The Apostle John in 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And here Jesus pictures the devil as a strong man guarding his possessions whom Jesus has come to bind or tie up like he's come in the middle of the night, he's invaded in the middle of the night to take back from Satan men and women for himself. That is the mission of Jesus in salvation. That's why he came. I'm thinking about the devil more this week than I really care to, to be quite honest, uh, in light of not only this text, but a friend of mine uh, who uh, he and I have been discussing, C.S. Lewis and the Screw Tape Letters, which you know is a book written by one demon to another. I want you to hear how Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, describes the mission of Jesus and why he came. Lewis writes, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage, plundering the evil one's goods. I know someone will ask me, do you really mean at this time of day to reintroduce our old friend the devil, hoofs and horns and all? Well, what the time of day has to do with it, I do not know. And I'm not particular about the hoofs and horns, but in other respects, my answer is yes, I do. Jesus is, is here asking the very obvious question, what do you think I've come to do? Other than to come and to plunder the kingdom of the evil one and build my kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. This is who I am. I am the son of David. It's illogical to think that Satan would come to bind himself and point people to Jesus. This blasphemy against the Spirit is illogical. But far more importantly, verses 30 to 32, blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable. We have no choice, friends, but to take Jesus at his word. What Jesus says he means, there's only one Jesus. And so when Jesus says plainly, clearly, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come, we dare not refuse to take him seriously. There's an unforgivable sin. Now, it is not murder. It is not adultery. It's not many of the things that you and I might think immediately to be unforgivable. If we even have those sorts of categories, we've become so accustomed, almost to, I might say, taking for granted the fact that God is gracious and forgives. That a statement like this is absolutely stunning to us, and it, and it should be. We are treading on very holy ground, and we must be incredibly careful. Some questions that you might ask of this passage, questions that I certainly have asked of this passage over the course of my Christian life, 
Number one, why is it if God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all equally God, why is it more severe, it seems, to speak against one of the members of the Trinity than it is to speak against the other two? That's an interesting question. Secondly, if Jesus means what He says, that in verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, without qualification, how then can He turn in the very next clause and qualify the statement with, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven? And as we ask these questions, we come right to the root of what this sin is. What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Let's just use the Pharisees as a case study for what it means in time to commit this sin, this fatal, eternal error. Here is Jesus, the Son of David who has come plunder the works of the devil who has come to establish his kingdom in righteousness, who has come to draw men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself, who has come not only claiming to be the Son of God, not only claiming to be the one who will die for sin, but coming and showing by miraculous proofs that he is who he says he is. He has come healing and performing miracles As a matter of fact, when John the Baptist in chapter 11 has questions about whether Jesus is the son of David, you will turn back there and read in verse 2 of chapter 11, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and not only what you hear, what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Simply to say, if you will not believe my word, look at what I do. Look at the healings, look at the miracles. They're unmistakable proofs that I am the son of David. And in the face of all of the evidence, when all of the facts are in, The Pharisee's only conclusion is not that he is the son of David, but that he is, in fact, the servant of Satan. He is not the son of David. He is the servant of Satan. See, they cannot deny that never has there ever been anyone like Jesus. They cannot deny that there is a power at work in him that they have never seen. They cannot deny that His message is filled with grace for the broken and the sinful and the wayward. They cannot deny it. They can't explain it away. And so what do they do? Rather than submitting to Jesus, they accuse Him of being demonic. If you don't think that unbelief has a powerful grip on the human heart. You need to look no further than here. Unbelief will not let go of the human heart. Even to the point of, in the face of all the facts, accusing Jesus of being satanic. 
Jesus here is, if you will, saying to them, what more could I do? What more could I say? What else could I possibly show you to convince you of who I am? There's nothing more I can give you. It's the same thing that's discussed in Hebrews chapter 6. Another passage that has caused anxiety in the hearts of many. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It is impossible, the writer says, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. It is impossible. So here's our first question. Why is it more severe to speak against the Holy Spirit than it is to speak against Jesus? Notice what the Pharisees are doing in light of what Jesus says in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus is talking about has everything to do with a man or a woman's willingness to be gathered to, to be drawn to, to believe in Jesus as the Son of David and the Messiah. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, he says, because of that, in light of that, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. We're beginning to frame out what this sin is. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit has everything to do with refusing to be gathered to Jesus. It is, in light of the entire context, to see clearly who Jesus is, to know clearly what He's come to do, and to persist in unbelief so strongly that rather than being drawn to Jesus, a soul alleges Him to be evil. That is the blasphemy against the Spirit. It is a very, very somber, terrifying thought that someone might persist in unbelief like that. It is unforgivable insofar as the person who has committed this sin has now placed themselves so outside of the realm of faith that there's nothing more to be done for them. Repentance is impossible. Being gathered to Jesus at this point is impossible. It is not a one-time verbal um, allegation against the Holy Spirit. It is not an ignorant one-time, unmeant, unfelt sort of thought that pops in your head. We're talking about a persistent unbelief that alleges Jesus to be evil. Listen how J.I. Packer describes this sin. J.I. Packer is so incredible and brilliant by every one of his books. This is what he writes. It is possible for people to be enlightened to the point of knowing inwardly that Jesus is the divine Savior He claims to be and still not willing to admit it publicly. Even as Justin admitted publicly this morning that Jesus is Lord 
because of all the behavioral changes that such an admission would make necessary. It is possible to try to make oneself feel good about one's own moral dishonesty by inventing reasons, no matter how absurd, for not treating Jesus as worthy of one's allegiance. Listen carefully, brother or sister. Christians who fear that they may have committed the unpardonable sin show by their very anxiety that they have not done so. Persons who have committed it are unremorseful and unconcerned. Indeed, they are ordinarily unaware, terrifying thought, what they have done and to what fate they have sentenced themselves. Ultimately, blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable because it rules out faith. If you are willing to come to Jesus this morning, let me quote to you from another gospel. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, everyone that the Father gives to me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Amazing grace. Let's not blind ourselves to the staggering promise that Jesus makes in this passage. Although blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, look at what Jesus promises will be forgiven. He makes this amazing statement. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Walk yourself through the Ten Commandments and evaluate yourself in light of sin and righteousness. I can guarantee you, you will show yourself to be guilty of being an idolatrous person. You've worshipped things other than the Creator, whether it's your spouse or your career or your possessions. You've not worshipped God. You are guilty. You have taken the Lord's name in vain. You are guilty. You have not honored your mother or your father perfectly all the time. You are guilty. You may not have committed murder, but you have certainly hated people in your hearts. You are guilty. You've committed adultery in your secret places as you've lusted after people who are not your spouse. Perhaps you've even committed physical adultery. You are guilty. You've coveted others' possessions. You are guilty. And yet, Jesus is clear. Every sin will be forgiven. Everything. That thing that you think of right now as the biggie, forgivable. That thing that you do not want anyone in your family or your friends or certainly in the context of this congregation to know, forgivable. Everything is forgivable in Christ. Not because, listen, not because God is some namby-pamby God who sweeps sin under the rug. God will have nothing of sin. But, at the very beginning of this Gospel, Jesus is given the name Jesus, chapter 1, verse 21, because He will save His people from their sins. And how does He enact His name? How does He accomplish that mission? He goes to the cross in chapter 27 and He lays down His life, not for His sins, but for yours. So that when Jesus says every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven, He's willing to put His money where His mouth is and pay for and atone for the sins of everyone who will come to Him. So come! What are you waiting for? That's why I say to you this morning, my fear, my desire, my burden is not for the person who fears that they may have committed this. I want to say to you, dear brother or sister, you must be the strangest unbeliever I've ever met if you are afraid that you've committed this sin. Because you just simply wouldn't care. 
My heart is for those of you who just simply don't care. You have heard and seen all there is to see. All the facts are in, and yet you refuse to vote yes. I want you to hear me very carefully. The people in this room who are in danger, and it's a real danger, the people in this room who are in danger of committing this sin are the people in this room who refuse to be gathered to Jesus. Whether it's an excuse like, I'll be thought of poorly by my friends, or I'll do it tomorrow. How do you know that there is a tomorrow? And if there is a tomorrow, how do you know that you'll be able to believe tomorrow? In light of what Jesus says, come now. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus as the Son of David. Trust in Him now. Blasphemy against the Spirit is unforgivable, but every other sin by faith in Christ is forgiven. Eternal life might be yours today. Number three, blasphemy against the Spirit is internal. It is internal. In other words, it originates in a person's heart. It is the inside coming out. Look at the way that Jesus describes this sin in verse 33. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, make the tree bad, and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. The imagery is fairly obvious on the surface of it. This is one of Jesus' famous and favorite illustrations. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And so on. Simply stated, a tree cannot produce fruit that is not in keeping with its character. A tree cannot produce fruit that is not keeping, in keeping with its character. The reason I've said that this sin is not a thought that pops into your head that you immediately want to discredit and abandon, what we're talking about is the heart set in opposition to Jesus coming out and being given verbal expression as he is maligned and referred to as evil. Jesus says the antidote to this kind of unbelief is a change of heart. Jesus uses this word, treasure. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. The risk of of being simplistic, this illustration was too tantalizing for me to avoid. The word for treasure here in the original is thesoru, his treasure. Word from which we get our word thesaurus. Now understand me, Matthew had no idea about what a thesaurus was 
when he wrote the gospel. But it stands that a thesaurus is a treasury, isn't it? It's a book that contains a treasure of different words that you might use in particular settings. You don't know what, which word to use. You dig into the thesaurus and then you find the right word for the right occasion. And here Jesus is saying that no one speaks out of character. We might try to allege that from time to time. I'm sorry that I said what I said. I didn't really mean it. But even when you've done that, you've revealed your character. You're careless with your speech. You cannot speak outside of your character. Rather, you dig into your thesaurus, your good or your evil treasure, and your true person comes out in your words. Jesus says this is an internal objection to Christ. The antidote is to, in your heart, trust in Jesus and then allow your words to speak words of affirmation and faith. Jesus is Lord. He's clear. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. Now understand, Jesus is not in any way saying that you're saved by your works, that you can speak your way into the kingdom of heaven. That is not what Jesus is saying. And the best way to understand this is to understand the end of Jesus' life as he's brought before the religious leaders and they are asking him, who do you say that you are? Are you the Son of Man? When are you going to tell us? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Savior? And Jesus says, you have said. You have said as it's so. And the response is, you yourselves have heard the blasphemy. See, in the court of trumped-up charges and wicked rulers, Jesus is, in a sense, condemned by his very own words. You yourselves have heard the blasphemy. Crucify him. But here, in an absolute turn of tides, Jesus is saying, you will either be justified or condemned by your very own words. As on the judgment day, the Father stands before you and says, Son of David or servant of Satan, well, by your words, you will be justified. Will you confess Jesus as Lord? You do that now so that you're assured of doing that then? Will you persist in unbelief? Some ridiculous allegation like, no, Jesus is the servant of Satan. Who is Jesus? Jesus is this wonderful son of David who has come to bring forgiveness and mercy and grace for every sin and every blasphemy ever committed by all of his people. And the only thing, listen, the only thing that prevents you this morning from enjoying that grace is your unwillingness to come. Come to me, Jesus says. John 6, 37. Come to me. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. The one who comes to me I will never cast out. We take Jesus at his word because he is the son of David and the Messiah. So come. Come today. Father, such a solemn warning, rebuke, challenge. As Jesus looks at the Pharisees who had accused him of being in league with Satan, and says, the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And yet it is amazing beyond words that even before that Jesus could say every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Or some of us here this morning have things weighing on our conscience that we would never speak, things that we've done in our past, things that we acknowledge, first and foremost, are sin against you. In light of your law, we stand condemned. But Jesus is the one who has come to save his people from their sins. He died on the cross on our behalf. He took the punishment that we deserved. In our place condemned, He stood. And then He rose again. That almighty and powerful and magnificent Son of David. So we pray that You would cause every one of us in this room, this morning, to gather to Jesus. Lord, save us from our unbelief and the hardness of our hearts. Glorify Yourself in and through Your Son. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus, the Lord. Amen.